Hello, and welcome to episode 232 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I am exhausted. How are you, sir? Good. You don't sound exhausted. You're rather upbeat and actually kind of moving pretty quickly today. Yeah, it's been a busy couple weeks, been a busy day, lots going on, trying to get a lot of things done around Chicago so that I and you can head to LA this weekend. So when the podcast comes out, we might both be on an airplane. That's true. No, I will not be. I'm flying out tomorrow, Thursday. Oh, so I will, well, I will already be I, in LA. I hope you're off the plane. I, I hope my flight is not 24 hours delayed, but you know what? Maybe it will be. I don't know. We'll talk about some issues with the 777. Some United later. issues. Yeah. 777 yeah, and, and United. United yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. Didn't make it to Cranky Dorkfest last year. Was last there in 2021. Yeah, looking forward to it. There was a bit of some disappointing news earlier today, and that was wiped we out took by care some of that. happy news. Yeah, I don't know who yeah. made some phone calls or, or who did what, but in the run-up to Cranky Dorkfest, Cranky Flyer, Brett Snyder put out a little tiny blog post saying, hey, unfortunately, LAX's runway too far right, which is the runway closest to in and out that basically goes right over our heads, will be closed starting the morning of the Dorkfest lasting all the way through January. And that would be really disappointing since you'd still see airplanes, but they'd be a bit farther away. But then all of a sudden, a couple hours later, all the notums disappeared. And uh, apparently the runway closures delayed by a few days, which a few days, squeak yeah. in there and, and see <laughs> airplanes. It was originally supposed to close last week, then this week, and now we're squeaking in. I don't know. I highly doubt we had anything to do with it, but I'll take it. Again, we will take credit, probably not where credit is due, but we will oh, take no, the credit. It is not due at all. <laughs> so yeah, Dorkfest is coming up this weekend. We hope that we will see a bunch of you who are hopefully listening to this episode of the podcast on your way to LA if you're flying in or the night before you drive over to the airport. So hopefully we see a bunch of you there. Jason, I'm a little disappointed that I'm going to Dorkfest though, because I have conflicting AvGeek Interests, excitement. Oh, yeah. what, what could possibly be more important than Dorkfest? A two-hour come-as-you-are or don't event. Yeah, so, so it, it's. I mean, I'm absolutely looking forward to, it, but I'm I'm slightly disappointed that I need to delay the project that I could start tomorrow, Thursday, but then would have to immediately leave. And that, my friends, are you building the Concord Lego model? Is Lego Concord? I figured that's where you were going with that. Yes. Bring it with you. The yo, can you imagine? It's so big. Yeah, so we're gonna have if you don't watch our YouTube channel, but only listen to the podcast, you're missing out because there's a lot of great content over there. So you should check out our YouTube channel, which is flightrated24.com, all spelled out. And in a week or so, there's going to be a fantastic video of the building of the Lego Concorde, as well as some history as we walk through it. We'll look at some of the cool facts and features of the actual Concorde as we build through the Lego Concorde. So I hope you'll all join me for that one. And I'm really looking forward to starting that. But I'm holding it in until next week so that I can go to, to Dorkfest and, and have fun with hopefully many of you fine people who are listening to this podcast. 
But Jason, we have the week's news to get through first. There's a lot of it. Can we do it? Can we do it? We can do it. It's going to take a while. (laughs) It'll just take a while. So we began the week with an outage in the UK that affected all flights in UK airspace. Which we did uh, talk about. Or tuned from UK airports. And we discussed that we would be awaiting the initial report from Nats about what exactly happened. And what happened is orders of magnitude more I don't even know what the term – interesting is not the word I was going to use, but it's a much more polite word. So we're going to go with that one. Yeah. I'm just impressed that Nats just a week later managed to publish an 18-page, very thorough, very comprehensive preliminary report. I don't see what they could really add in a, in a final report later, but this is a well-formatted, very comprehensive report. And yeah. Ian, what the hell happened? So – What happened was, let's take a step back. There are waypoints around the world that are not necessarily physical. Some are physical objects like radio beacons or, you know, airports. airports. And then others are just made up five letter points with a latitude and a longitude. And they are scattered throughout the world and they are inputted into flight plans so that the air traffic controllers and the pilots know where a flight is planning on flying. We're going to go from waypoint Charlie to waypoint Goofy to waypoint Wacky to waypoint Cheese. And I'm pretty sure all of those are actual waypoints somewhere in the world. We're going to have to map that out and put that in the show notes, see what that flight path would look like. Yeah, there you go. So what happened was the waypoints are supposed to be unique, much like the ICAO addresses for individual aircraft are supposed to be unique. But there are some duplicate waypoints. And if there are duplicate waypoints, what's supposed to happen is that they are supposed to be geographically separated from each other by a long way so that bad things don't happen. And in this case... A particular flight was operating not even to or from a UK airport, but the two waypoints were part of that flight plan and they had the same name. And the system just said, nope. Kind of freaked out. These two waypoints, by the way, were 4,000 nautical miles apart. So they weren't even close. And I guess the odds of a flight overflying UK airspace that just happens to route through both of these waypoints is just astronomically unlikely. Obviously, hasn't happened before. The system that Nats uses here was in place since 2018, and it hasn't run into such a situation until then. And there's a bit more detail in this. We'll link to the report. Yeah, the full report's very detailed. into a lot of the details on how flight plans are inputted, how the workings between Nats and Eurocontrol and the airline and the end user works, all sorts of fun abbreviations like FIPSRA and ADIXNAS. I know that one. (laughs) National Airspace System. That's easy. But it's really interesting that the cascading failure here was that the system kept trying to fail over to the next logical thing saying, oh, 
we found an entry point, but we can't find an exit point out of UK airspace. So let's look at the next waypoint. Oh, that doesn't make any sense. So let's do the next thing on the basically the flow chart of what do we do in this unexpected situation. And the system got so far down the list of no, 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 none of this makes any sense that it had a basically a critical failure, what they called a critical exception, was it? I'm probably getting the term wrong, but no, no, it is a critical exception, which basically means yeah, I don't have any program for this. I don't know what to do next. I'm going to stop doing everything because I don't know what's going on. And in this case, there are two completely independent redundant systems. And within 20 seconds, the primary system, Nat says, had this critical exception, failed over to the backup system, which did the same exact thing. And within 20 seconds said, I also don't know what's going on. I'm checking out for the day. And basically, both systems went into a failure maintenance mode where they would not process any additional flight plans. And that was that. Interestingly, Nat says they have a four-hour buffer of flight plans, basically, meaning if there's any sort of critical exception failure like this, normal flight can continue for a buffer period of four hours. But this issue took so long to figure out, troubleshoot, test a temporary fix, and actual, actually reboot the system that they exceeded that four-hour buffer period and actually ended up having to start taking flight plans manually which is why they had to reduce the throughput through their airspace, which led to a total number of cancellations on Monday the 28th of exceeding 1,500, with more, of course, canceled the following days. But they do say that this number is in addition to the delays of flights on the 28th of August of the 5,500 flights that did operate in the UK airspace, 575 were delayed as a result of the incident. So a lot of delays, cancellations. It took BA the better part of the week to catch up on all its canceled flights and inconvenienced passengers. But Nat says it has identified this exceptionally rare circumstances and has patched everything up. So this particular issue will not happen again. Yeah. And the actual full report, I mean, it's, I guess, technically a preliminary report still, but it is quite in depth. And I will note that they say to continue, I guess, using the acronym, the FIPRSAR subsystem has operated, this is the system that takes in the flight plan data, has operated continuously since October 2018 and processed over 15 million flight plans. That's great. That's a a fun number. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It's just interesting to see this kind of analysis because usually when we hear things like this, usually the cause is like, oh, power supply failed and our really shoddily built backup failover system didn't work. So the whole thing just shut off. Like how many times have we heard and seen that before? But this is a really thorough investigation to an absurdly rare software glitch. I'm kind of surprised they were able to figure that out so quickly, but good on them for doing that. And hopefully this never happens again. Yeah. I mean, what a, I guess, fun way to learn that this particular thing exists. Not great, but a really interesting report to read and it shall be listed in the show notes. Moving on, good sir, we go to Niger 
or we don't, but we can overfly it again because it's back open. That airspace, yeah, it's great news, especially for long haul flights that are transiting through Western Africa, Northwestern Africa, I suppose, on their way to Southern Africa from Europe or vice versa. So that takes a long detour away. Still some issues on the ground following coup there, but overflights have indeed resumed. So that's a bit of good news. Jason, do we go leisure carriers in Europe or do we go what happened to United? Where do we want to go next? Let's go with leisure. Let's change it up a little bit. All right. Leisure carriers in Europe for a thousand. Daily double? Wow. It is the day I'm betting the ranch. We are discovering Discover Airlines this week, which as Jason will explain momentarily, can you book them yet at all? Kind of. What is Lufthansa doing? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question because nobody ever knows what the Lufthansa group is doing strategically. That's a big mystery. But in this specific case, the airline formerly known as Eurowings Discover, which launched in 2021, has for some reason rebranded to Discover Airlines. I don't know why. I will say I like delivery. It's kind of it is Euro white, but the, the tail art, I, I think, is interesting. I think you agree as well. Yeah. I said it reminds me of 1960s Miami. Yeah. There you go. It's nice. It could be a lot duller, so I'm happy to see that. But I don't know if anyone actually understands why this airline exists. Like, I kind of understood when it was Eurowings Discover, oh, okay, it's some weird pilot or cabin crew segmented union reason thing to exist. Like we used to see CityJet operate Lufthansa A340-300s. I thought this was the same kind of thing. But in this case, they look like they have their own differentiated brand outside of Eurowings, outside of Lufthansa. But if you go to the Discover Airlines website, you really, really have to dig to find out where they even operate to because it's a smattering of short haul within Europe and a few North American and I think even African destinations on A330s. But you can't really, I mean, you can book Discover Airlines, but you just have to happen to find it because its own website just redirects you back to the Lufthansa booking site. And if one of your routes that you're searching for on the day you happen to be searching for lines up with a Discover Airlines departure, good for you. You end up on Discover Airlines instead of Eurowings or instead of mainline Lufthansa. The whole thing is just a little weird. If they're really going all in on this independent brand of Discover Airlines, I would have expected an independent booking flow where you can actually search for flights operated by that airline. So I just don't really know what they're getting at. It it kind of reminds me of a less insulting version of June, the Air France thing. A less insulting version of June. less insulting in that they're not lying to you about what they are. They're not claiming to be a rooftop bar or some other stupid analogy. It's an airline. They know it's an airline. They have their own brand, so it's not insulting me. But it's very similar in that you don't really go out of your way to book Discover Airlines. You search for a route and a date, and if they happen to be operating – you end up on them. So it's similar, but thankfully different. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason or listeners, podcast at fr24.com. My understanding was that when Eurowings Discover was founded, it was to be the long haul component 
of Eurowings because you would, you know, Eurowings was the low cost. I want to go from Munich to Palma or Munich to Sardinia or, or whatever, Frankfurt to Canaria or whatever, you know, the traditional leisure destinations. And then Eurowings Discover would be you would go out and discover the world. You would go to to Windhoek or you would go down, you know, or go to Miami or LA or, or whatever, but on a low cost airline. But now they just – the first Discover Airlines aircraft is an A320neo. Yes. And it, it's flying to some interesting places, I guess, that you can discover. But then they also fly to Philadelphia, which is not exactly <laughs> a, a place that I think many people go to discover. That's probably they, a, I a mean, business-centric route, if I had to guess. I don't know of many Europeans that say, I want to go to Philadelphia and take a nonstop flight there. They fly to Zimbabwe, Victoria Falls, which is interesting. But again, that, I thought that these, were, sense to me. these were Eurowings flights. And it's not like Eurowings is not flying long haul. They still have a very large A330 fleet. But I guess what Lufthansa is trying to do here is compete directly with Condor, which is interesting. Okay. Sure. I mean, why not compete on all the levels? I don't know. I got I don't really We'll figure it out. All right. Here's one that was fun because somebody said, hey, I got a question for you. And I said, I think I can get an answer. And as it turns out, we got an answer. So yesterday, Tuesday, the 5th of September, United Airlines said, we're having a problem. We need to stop. And so they did. They stopped all of their flights. And they did so via FAA-issued ground stop. That led to a podcast listener writing in going, why? Why can't United just say, hey, don't take off? We're not taking off. We're having a problem. You can't go anywhere. And so we reached out to an air traffic controller, and that person provided a very helpful and succinct answer to that. So here we go. In the circumstances where a company's means of communications have been compromised or something needs to happen quickly, it's much more expedient and effective to have air traffic controllers communicate the ground stop since with just a few keystrokes and clicks, the message can get out to every air traffic control facility nationwide in a matter of seconds. So it might take hours, depending on what's happened, to reach individual air crews if the airline was trying to do it themselves. If they can do that at all. If their systems are down, yeah. maybe they, they can't even do that. Exactly. So when the airline requests the FAA ground stop, that gets put into the national airspace system and the air traffic controllers say, hey, guess what? You're not going anywhere. Yeah. And then they can always say, you know, if you need details, call your office. Yeah. And this is not an uncommon thing. This happens all the time during thunderstorms or snow or anything, even a terminal issue where the airline says, oh, crap, we're out of gates. We can't take any more inbound aircraft. They will have the FAA issue a ground stop only for that particular airline, only to that airport. And again, it's just easier to have the FAA stop every departure from every conceivable origin point if you can't accept any more aircraft than doing it yourself. So not uncommon, but it was a very good question. Yeah, I thought so. Like when I saw the question, I was like, I think I know the answer. I have the beginnings of an answer, but let's get it right. And so thank you to the air traffic controller that was nice enough to answer that question. You know who you are. Those air traffic controllers, they're they camera shy and, and microphone shy, but they know things. I don't think they're microphone shy. They sit behind a microphone <laughs> all day, which is why I think they're like, I, I've got enough of that. 
I've had enough of that. Let's head much further south than we've been today, all the way to Australia, and talk about my good friend and yours, Jason, Alan Joyce, who is now the ex-CEO of Qantas Group because he retired a few months early. Yeah, there were some fairly negative headlines going on in Australia recently, and we have a that's quote generous. Here. Yeah, that's generous. <laughs> on 31st October, it emerged that the airline had allegedly sold seats on thousands of flights between May and July 2022 that never took off. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission is suing the airline for false, misleading, or deceptive conduct that affected thousands of travelers. And I think there was also a very hefty fine that came into effect here. And Alan Joyce, who was already ready to retire in two months from now, said, you know what? I should go now. I should go. I'll see myself out. And see himself out, he did. He announced, I think, on the 4th of September, 3rd of September, that his last day would be the 5th. And as of the 6th of September, Vanessa Hudson is now the new chief executive. She's the current chief financial officer of Qantas. So that moves forward things a few months, but no huge change in who's going to be running the airline or no huge change in plans about who's going to be running the airline. No. Yeah. The issue with the selling the seats on the canceled flights is a big one. There's also a big deal with the flight delays, Qantas flight delays, the cost of tickets, and the fact that the airline made a record annual profit, an underlying pretext profit of nearly 1.6 billion US dollars, 2.5 billion Australian dollars. Mm. So Joyce said, it's time for me to go. I will see you all later. Goodbye. Okay. I don't know if that's a direct quote, but uh, yes. And chased by a bear. Wait, in this particular, they have bears in Australia. They've got everything in Australia. If it can kill you, it's in Australia. I assume. I don't know. So Joyce out, Hudson in. Let's see how things go. Okay, okay. Turkish Airlines, which was supposed to order nine trillion new aircraft all in one fell swoop, maybe during the Paris Air Show, has said no. We're just going to buy a dozen or so aircraft every month. For the next 50 years, it sounds like. Yeah, interesting. Just last month, Turkish ordered four Airbus A350-900s and it said, you know what? No, we're not done. We miscalculated. We want 10 more. Now bringing up their total number for that aircraft type to 40. Hmm. Okay. That's a lot of aircraft. That's a lot, but not nearly as many as everyone thought they would order. But maybe next month, they'll order another 40 and they just keep doing that every month until they get to a billion. <laughs> I mean, just just keep it going. That's like the question of, would you want me to give you a million dollars or do you want me to give you a penny and I'll double it every day? And it sounds like Turkish is taking the penny and doubling it every day. Okay. It's one way to do it. If anybody ever asks you that, you want the penny. Yes. You want the penny and you want it to double. That's the answer to that question. If you're listening and we're thinking, I don't know, it's the penny. Trust me. Well, only if you plan Compound to interest a long time, would be a friend. Right? It does not take long. It does not hmm. take long. We'll have to do the math. Jason, you can do the math on your flight tomorrow, and you can tell everyone at Dorkfest. That flight's not nearly you, long you've enough done for that, that kind of math. <laughs> then you're doing it wrong. Let's go to Russia now, where, wait, Aircap got a settlement from Aeroflot? What is happening? Part of a settlement from parts of the aircraft that were illegally seized and 
taken by Russia. In this case, Aircap actually received a payment of $645 million from a Russian insurer in full settlement for 17 aircraft and five spare engines. So that seems to just be kind of scratching the surface of the amount of aircraft that were taken by Russian airlines. In this case, it's strictly the Aeroflot group, meaning Aeroflot and its subsidiaries, of which there are a couple, I think. So just 17 aircraft, which scratches the surface of the probably tens of billions of dollars owed for hundreds of aircraft that are still out there in Russia. But I am rather surprised that anyone be it Aircap or GE or anyone was able to get any sort of settlement. I'm not going to say quickly, but I would have expected this to drag on for a decade easily. And it seems like we're actually on track to get see some of this money back to the rightful owners of these aircraft rather quickly. But Aircap says it still has a separate $3.4 billion claim against, quote, all risks. Don't know what that means, insurers, this comes from Flight Global, by the way, including a $908 million claim relating to these 17 aircraft and five engines. So the overall claim falls to just $2.75 billion. This is just 17 aircraft we're talking about. There are hundreds of aircraft out there. But yeah, I'm surprised that any lessor was able to get anything back. And for those wondering, the payment back to Aircap was approved, I guess, by all necessary entities. There's no sort of sanction issue here. So that's good news for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they seem to be happy and I'm glad they were able to get some money back. Yeah. From the insurer in this case. Yeah. Aeroflot didn't pay anything. The insurance company, I guess, did. Yeah. I'm happy. I guess they're happy to get it from anyone. I mean, take what you can get at this point. This one, I'm not sure if we talked about it when it happened. I don't think so, but I don't think we did. I don't remember it. There's a final report out now on a Nordwind A321 that this story also from Flight Global, doing some great Russia reporting this week that we're happy to share on. Nordwind A321, which executed a go-around with over 100 system failures after a hard landing. Ooh. 100 failures were communicated by ACARS after the A321 smashed into the runway nose gear first. The aircraft pitched down just before landing, struck Nose gear first, hard enough that two of the inertial reference systems and one of the flight augmentation computers failed immediately. That led to a loss of heading, pitch, roll, and speed information on the captain's side. The damage was so severe that all of the remaining data was out of alignment because the aircraft struck so hard. And then kind of like with the, oddly, with the NATS failure, the last remaining computer looked at the data coming to it, said, no, no, none of this looks right. Then it just shut off. It just stopped processing data. What was coming to it, it determined was unreliable, rightfully so. So the A321 reverted back down to direct law. There were hydraulic failures. They were using visual guidance and standby instruments. They decided to make a low pass at the airport. They tried to do that. Then one of the hydraulic systems lost complete pressure. The 
<laughs> they were having smoke warnings, but because of the loss of the hydraulic pressure, the smoke warnings went away because all of the smoke causing hydraulic fluid left the aircraft. Mm-mm. They couldn't select full flaps. They could do slats. They confirmed that the landing gears were extended. They tried another approach. There were more problems. This is just like one thing after another. And they finally, finally were able to bring the aircraft down safely. They touched down too slow and too hard and stopped on the runway. That said, there were no passengers on the aircraft. It was just seven crew members. So this would be, I think, a much, much bigger story had there been passengers on the aircraft, which is why I don't think we heard about it or talked about it when it initially happened. Yeah. And I don't know if you mentioned, but this actually happened way back January 10th, 2020. So yes, yes. more than a while now at this point, and this report's coming out, which is good. But wait, Ian, there's more. Also, it gets better. Flight Global. Wow, these these guys are crushing the Russian aviation news. <laughs> Although there were no passengers or cargo on this flight, obviously they conducted a thorough investigation. But an interesting twist, and I'm going to quote here: Russian investigators have not been able to determine whether a deliberate attempt was made to erase the cockpit voice recorder of a Norwegian Airbus A321 after a hard landing by fitting it into a different aircraft. So this is very interesting. The recorder was in this aircraft, which by the way was VQBRS. I'd be very interested, Ian, to see if this aircraft is still flying or what its status is. But basically what it goes on to say that the approach was unstable, blah, blah, blah. There were all sorts of failures. Russia's Interstate Aviation Committee says both the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder went in place when the inquiry commission inspected the A321. But when the cockpit voice recorder was initially read, the data retrieved indicated that the erase button for the recorder had been pressed in the cockpit. They say that over two hours and four minutes of information was obtained from the recorder. But after decoding, the trace of the flight in question was found to be absent. Instead, there was a recording of a different flight involving another Norwind A321, VPBHN, operating the opposite route on January 11th, the day after the accident. Very, very interesting. They say the inquiry found that both the cockpit voice recorder and data recorders were repeatedly removed between the accident aircraft, the warehouse of maintenance and the second A321 where both jets were parked down in Turkey. And I guess it's not uncommon or not out of the ordinary that a piece of equipment like a cockpit voice recorder or data recorder would be swapped between aircraft, though the timing here is oddly suspicious. But they unfortunately were not able to determine whether or not it was erased on purpose in some sort of effort to defeat the investigation. But Sure seems like they tried to figure that out in Russia. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I'm now looking at photos from a, a Turkish aviation news site, Airport Haber, and they have photos of the landing gear in the cabin. Huh. That's Top of the landing something. gear is in the cabin. So I, I think it's safe to assume that aircraft is not flying no, anymore. It's not. It oh, was damaged beyond repair. It was broken up at the incident location in Turkey in October 2021, according to planespotters.net. So no, it's not flying. There you but go. I, I, I have not seen that picture. Please share it with me when we're done. I will both share it with you and we'll link to this oh, in the I uh, see it now. In the that's, show notes. There that's it is. It's not supposed to be there. 
No. Oh, check the show notes for that one. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, that, that landing gear's in the wrong spot. Yeah, it sure is. Speaking of things in the wrong spot, this was an interesting one because on the face of it, it looked really bad. But then when you dig into it, you're like, all right, I wouldn't have done that. That's not the choice I would have made, but it seems like the weather was okay. I'm referring to Ethiopian Airlines going full Leroy Jenkins into a super typhoon landing in Hong Kong, flying into the middle of the super typhoon hours after everyone else had been like, now we're done and left Hong Kong to fly another day. Ethiopian came in and said, yeah, weather looks fine. We can make it. And they did. And and they did. They didn't even have a go around. And this is not the part of the story that's especially noteworthy because, okay, if the weather is within limits of this aircraft and the crew feels like they're up to it, sure, nothing wrong with that. Where the story gets more interesting, Ian, go on. You know what, Jason? I don't really know how the story gets more interesting than this, because I already said Leroy Jenkins. Where where are you going with this, This isn't the interesting part. The interesting part is the the little bit of a scandal where getting in is one thing, but getting back out is the more, I would say, challenging thing and something they should not have attempted. So they flew into Hong Kong in the middle of the, the super typhoon, which, I mean... I get the passengers can get into Hong Kong and wait out the rush of the storm before moving on. But what they did not do and what they needed to do and what they should have done was canceled or at least delayed significantly the return flight out of Hong Kong. They did not do that. There are many news reports that say passengers tried calling or emailing or whatever to try to switch flights. And they said, nope, flight's going. You cannot change your flight. You better find yourself a way to Hong Kong airport, which in the middle of a super typhoon, not particularly easy because I think even the airport express train had stopped running and it's a hazard. You don't really want to be out in a super typhoon because it's a super typhoon. You don't go outside. So not only were they putting the passengers at risk here, but also, of course, any of the ground crew that had to service the aircraft were put in potential danger here. But it really, to to rub salt in the wound here, passengers were only informed at 10.08 and 10.15, either by email or by airport monitors, that the 10.40 p.m. flight was canceled. So all these poor passengers had to schlep all the way out to an airport in the middle of a super typhoon, only to be told less than an hour before departure that their flight was actually canceled. Just not great. And why I bring this story up is because Ethiopian, in my eyes, and I think many others, and probably in every passenger's eyes, they screwed up. They should have offered flexibility or delayed the return flight, but they really doubled down on their response on Facebook, saying that the typhoon was far away by the time they landed. That is not true. Quote, far away. (laughs) Far away. We, We have radar and things that can prove where the aircraft was when it landed and where the storm was, and it was very much there. And of course, remember, it's a super typhoon, so that means it could get demonstrably worse in a very short amount of time, which I think it did. And that's why the return flight was canceled. But they say they they really double down and say the report that some media, which stated the flight landed at Hong Kong in the middle of a super typhoon is absolutely incorrect. Well, of course it's correct. That's a fact. That is what happened. And yes, the flight was in acceptable limits, but then the weather deteriorated and the return flight was, quote, closed for operations. And then the flight was postponed by 24 hours, which is what should have happened in the first place. So instead of just apologizing and saying, 
oh, you know what? We'll learn from this. We probably shouldn't have tried to operate this flight in the conditions. We're sorry. We're going to give each passenger 2,000 Sheba miles or whatever. I think that's what Ethiopian uses. No, they doubled down, called everyone else stupid, said everyone else is wrong. We're right. The situation was just against us. No, you did the wrong thing. Just admit it. Really makes me wary of booking an Ethiopian flight if they were so inflexible that they wouldn't rebook passengers in the middle of a, you know, super typhoon where the entire city was closed, except for Ethiopian. End of rent. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. We're going to China. Actually, we're going to the desert southwest in the United States because a half-year financial report from China, Southern Airlines confirms that they are done with the A380. We already knew this because they had already parked the planes in California, but now it's officially official because it's in a financial report. The final two of six A380s operated by China Southern Airlines, the only A380A operated to continuously operate their A380s throughout the pandemic. They never stopped flying them. They are now, I think, the third A380 operator to say, we are done for good. It's officially official and no more. So B-6139 and B-6140 are parked in Mojave. Both arrived on the 21st of December 2022, but now it's financially official, which I guess makes it officially official. So China Southern's out of the game, Air France is out of the game, and who am I missing among A380 operators? Kind of, sort of, right? I guess. Yeah, I guess that would be the case. I believe everyone else is operating at least one of the A380s. So yeah, sad to see him go, but there it is. Not terribly surprising, but at least they gave the A380 one last real hurrah at the end through all of COVID. Again, the only airline to not ground the type for some reason kept it going the whole time. So that was nice. Yeah. What is going on in Mexico? Nobody knows. Is the government trying to make things so bad that the airlines give up? Are they trying to make the airport miserable? Are they trying to make Aeromexico miserable? I it's all do of it, not understand what is happening here, and I don't understand why. Well, Aeromexico has the same questions. This Aeromexico press release comes to us by a, a friend of the show, Ed Russell. Hey, Ed, Ned, see you later. See you at Dorkfest. <laughs> See you at Dorkfest. See you at Dorkfest, yeah. But Mexican authorities want to further reduce Mexico City's main airport, you know, the, the legitimate one, the one where all the airlines and, and people are, further from 52 movements an hour all the way down to 43. And as Ned puts it, Aeromexico has questions. Yeah. And I quote here, I don't quote here, but I, I'll get to that point, but this is already a further reduction. So last year... Operations were moved down from 61 to 52 per hour, and that will be 52 to 43. So that's a big reduction in capacity at what's supposed to be Mexico City's main airport. And Aeromexico would really like to know why this is happening, how it's supposed to operate as an airline with this, and will this be the last time something like this happens? And probably not. Yeah. And this is affecting other things as well, because a few weeks ago, I think, no, I'm sorry, this goes back to the end of July. So technically weeks ago, but about six weeks ago now, 
the US was like, we're done with the Allegiant Air Viva Aerobus joint venture because we don't know what's going on down there. Like, we don't understand what's happening here with the Mexico City airport. We're not even going to bother reviewing this because it sounds like things are going to change by the time we get to the end. And whether or not we approve something or not, it won't matter by the time we get through all the paperwork. Yeah. And Aeromexico goes on to say the measure will affect passengers using the airport, of course, industry employees, and the attraction of new investments that depend on having legal certainty and adequate air conductivity, which is they're very much trying to get across here. Hey, stop screwing with Mexican aviation because you're screwing us up and we might not be an airline anymore if we don't know if we're going to have a hub airport. So cut it out. I'm not one for conspiracy theories, although we'll talk about that in a couple episodes future from now. But this this seems to me, if you wanted to slowly dismantle Aeromexico, death by a thousand cuts, this This would be a great way to do it. it. But why? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. That one I can't help. Maybe, I mean, is it some sort of weird, like, hey, reviving Mexicana or like- does I it go along with do that just to rebrand Aero Mexico? Right. Mexicana. I don't know. Or just, you know, fund Mexicana and let them compete, which is what they're going to do anyway, which is yep. just still bizarre to me. None of this makes any sense. So I think what this brings us to is that we're going to have to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about as far as the holistic picture of aviation in Mexico and figure out what in the world is going on. Yes. And I want to go back one step. The former Ooh. A380 operators, Hi-Fi Malta, Air France, uh-huh. yep. now China Southern, Malaysia uh-huh. Airlines, Malaysia, and Thai Airways are all former operators of the A380. Yes, I suppose Thai does now count as a former operator since they haven't operated them in a very long time. Well, they're all, for, they're sale all for sale. Now. So if right. you want one, go right. buy it. And you can be the next former operator of an A380. <laughs> you too can be the next former operator of the A380. I like it. I don't really have a transition on this one. So we'll just say Speaking that- Speaking of things that formally existed- <laughs> There you go. That's a questionable at best, but go first. The Indian airline we've talked about many times recently, who- currently is postponing flights until, let's see if they pushed it out again. Ah, yeah. The most recent date that they will definitely be resuming flights on September 10th. Definitely going to happen. Going to be a lot more difficult now that IATA has yanked its airline code, the G8 code that used to be, I don't know, operated by or, or used by GoFirst has been withdrawn, recalled by IATA. So it really seems unlikely that GoFirst is going to be operating again anytime soon. If it has to go out there and recall its recalled IATA code, doesn't seem particularly likely. So another nail in the coffin for the unfortunate death of GoFirst. Yeah, it's. I mean, once you stop operating, it's really hard to get going again. And yeah. it doesn't seem like they're going to do it. I don't know what triggers IATA to recall its issued code. I assume it's, well, the check stopped coming, so we're taking our code back. And if you're getting down to the point right. where you're not paying IATA, you have really scraped the bottom of the barrel for things you are not able to financially keep up with. So yeah, that's probably not a very good sign. Well, good luck to them. 
and we wish them all the best. Speaking of not having any money and and wishing them luck, remember how last week we mentioned, hey, there might be this new airline that's an old airline, but it's coming back, but it might not be coming back, and who knows? Yeah, it's a weird thing. I do. I wish we didn't talk about it because I have a personal policy of not talking about stuff like this because ninety nine and a half times out of ten out of a hundred, well, you know what? No, I'm going with ninety nine and a half times out of ten. It's that positive for me that these things don't happen. And somehow in a week, they the relaunch but of But this Monarch one's a new from, record. We're coming. We're coming back. We got a plan to, ah, oh, crap, we're out of money. If, if we it, hadn't it like talked about it last week, we never would have been able to talk it about it. It was like it. a week when they rebranded, they went out with Mid-August, all these they come plans out of nowhere. To, to relaunch. And then this week, they're like, you know what? Actually, we don't have any money. Never mind. Quote, at the current stage, there is no practical option to move forward in the immediate future. <laughs> it's just, just not – this is the best sentence ever. The company that wanted to be an airline has exhausted the funding that it had, quote, far more rapidly than anticipated. Oh, yeah? What did they spend their money on? They had like four Instagram ads and a couple of pictures. It is a very good question. And I'm not sure, but if I were, I don't know, some sort of financial investigator or the IRS or someone, I would probably be looking into this even though- You'd be looking into that? Yeah, this isn't an IRS jurisdiction kind of thing. Whatever, but whatever, whatever the, the counterpart there is, yeah. somebody should probably look into this because if a dollar was spent, it was spent almost certainly in fraud because this was a new record for stupid airline reboots. That was just – oh, I'm glad we talked about it last week so that we could talk about this mm-hmm. this week. What a way to close. And on that note, we are done with episode 232 of AvTalk. Jason's off tomorrow on Thursday, so he'll already be in LA by the time you listen to the podcast. I will be in the air as the podcast hits your ears, and we will hopefully see many of you this weekend. If not, we will talk to you next week. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.